All right, so Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 11 through 24. Paul writes, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were granted, grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? All right, so as a week ago, we began looking at this final chapter in this three-chapter interlude in Paul's exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the book of Romans. So after laying out all of the teaching and all of the benefits of the gospel in Romans 1 through 8, he then pauses, he hits the pause button to discuss the question of the Jews before giving application to gospel living. And this question of the Jews is a very important question for several reasons, because if the Jews are not saved, if the Jews can reject the gospel, God's uh, chosen people, if they can reject the gospel, if they can be cast away, then this raises all sorts of questions for our own salvation. Because we might think, well, has God's word failed? If God promised to save the Jewish people, if they were his chosen race, and then many of them are rejected, many of them reject the gospel and have been cast off, well, will God cast me off? You know, what's the, I mean, I'm not a Jew, so, you know, I mean, I, he has even less reason to hold on to me if he's not holding on to his chosen people. Or has God, is God incapable of keeping his promises? Maybe he really, really, really wants to save the Jewish people, but can't because he doesn't want to violate their free will or whatever reason you want to throw in there, what have you. Or maybe God is just fed up with the Jews. He's like, I've had it with these people. Away with them. Cast them off. I'm tired. He's like, he gets like a petulant child. You know, he's like, he doesn't get his way. And it's like, okay, fine. I don't want to play with you anymore. Go away. If the answer to any of the above questions is yes, then that, like I said, raises the question, then how do I know that my salvation is secure? 
That's a very important question. Paul needs to answer the Jewish question before he goes on to application because, to be quite honest, the integrity of God's word is at stake. The integrity of God's promises are at stake and the integrity of God himself is at stake. So let's just look a little bit back again, a review from what we saw last week in verses 1 through 10. So as we've been learning through Romans 9 through 11, Israel's unbelief, their rejection of the gospel, their rejection of Messiah is due to three broad reasons. The first one we saw in Romans 9 was because of God's sovereign choice. He chose some and passed over others. He gives mercy on whomever he will show mercy and he hardens whomever he will harden. But then in Romans 10, we saw that Israel's unbelief was also due to their responsibility to believe. They were called to believe. They had all of these blessings and benefits given to them, yet they still rejected the gospel. They still rejected their own teaching. They still rejected their Messiah. They had a responsibility to believe. And now as we look at here in Romans 11, we're going to see God's purpose. He has a reason for why many Jews have been hardened, and we're going to finally get into that this week. So, but last week's study, again, we looked at this concept of the remnant of Israel. So the chapter starts off with the question, has God rejected his people? And Paul says, certainly not, because he has saved a remnant. He has always preserved for himself a remnant. He points to himself. He's like, look, I'm a Jew. (laughs) If God has rejected his people, then I would not be here. I would not be a believer. I would still be out persecuting the church like I was when God called me in the first place. But we also learn that God cannot reject those whom he foreknew. To do so would be for God to go back on his word and promises. And if God did that, he wouldn't be God. If God does not keep his promises, he's not God. He's not worthy of being worshipped if he cannot keep his promises. But as we said, God has always preserved for himself a remnant. This has been true all throughout Israel's history. There has always been a remnant. Even in their darkest, deepest moments of idolatry and apostasy, there have been a few who have not, as we learned from the story of Elijah, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. It was true in the days of Elijah in which, if anything, the faith of the people was probably at its lowest ebb. You know, I mean, the nation of Israel was an apostate nation from the very beginning when they split between the two, the two, the northern and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was had had moved into apostasy very quickly. So this is at their lowest ebb. Yet there was seven thousand God had preserved for himself, seven thousand who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And he tells that to Elijah. It's like you're not alone. Because Elijah's thinking, you know, I'm all alone. I'm the only one here. I'm the only one who believes. I, I did all this and I thought it would work into a great revival, yet I'm all alone. And God says, you're not all alone. Don't worry. I've got a remnant and I will preserve that remnant. And it's true in Paul's day too. Paul could kind of see himself perhaps as a modern day Elijah. Here he is preaching the gospel. He goes faithfully from town to town to town, goes to the synagogue, preaches the gospel to the Jews, And some will believe, many will reject, and then he turns then to the Gentiles. And that has to weigh heavy on him, as we saw earlier in Romans 9 and 10. He has a great sorrow for his people because he wants them to believe, yet they're not believing. So, but just as in Elijah's day, it's true in Paul's day. There is a faithful remnant. 
And as is the case with all humanity, this faithful remnant is saved while the rest are hardened. That's how he ends that section in Romans 1, uh, 11, verses 1 through 10. God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. It is God's sovereign choice. But as we learned last week, this hardening of the people of Israel is a judicial punishment for their repeated stubbornness and hard-heartedness. God says, fine, I will, I will give you ears that do not hear, I will give you eyes that do not see, and you will remain in darkness. So as we head now into Romans 11, verses 11 through 24, if the first section, the first 10 verses, answers the question, has God rejected his people? The next section that we're going to look at answers the question, why has God allowed this partial hardening to happen? So the first question was answered with a resounding no. God's rejection of Israel is not and has never been total. The faithful remnant saved by grace through faith testified to that fact. So God has not totally rejected his people. And I'm not saying that like a high school girl, you know, totally. But he has not totally rejected his people. He's always saved this remnant. And now what we're going to see is that God has not even finally rejected his people, as we will see in uh, this section here. But Paul is going to answer this question, why has God allowed this hardening to occur in three ways? The first reason is to move the Jewish people to jealousy at the mass salvation of Gentiles. So as Gentiles are, are coming into the covenant people of God, as they're receiving the gospel by grace through faith, this is you know, to move the Jews to jealousy. But also, he's going to answer that this is to graft the Gentiles into the rich root of the olive tree. And then the third answer to this question is to display God's kindness and his severity. So those will be our three headings as we look at this section. So first we're going to see that God has not, um, God has allowed this hardening to move the Jews to jealousy in the first five, uh, six verses there, 11 through 16. So right off the bat here, Paul asks what will be his last rhetorical question. As we've been seeing throughout Romans, every now and then Paul will ask a question, and it's usually something that he has probably encountered during his many uh, missionary journey and trips and many times presenting the gospel to people here. So he asks this question in verse 11 that sets up a principle for the rest of this passage where he says, okay, I say then, here's my last question to you, Paul. They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? In other words, God is not just saying, okay, fine, I'm done with you, away with you. That's why they stumbled. And then Paul says, may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, the Jews, that is, jealous. So Israel's stumbling, their failure to fully understand the law, their failure to fully understand the gospel, and believe the gospel wasn't the purpose, wasn't for the purpose, I should say, of their ultimate failure. It wasn't God just saying, I'm done with my people. They're hard-hearted. They're stubborn, like he did on Mount Sinai. It's like this stiff-necked people. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses intercedes for them, says, don't do that, please. And, and then here, he's not doing this as a spite against the Jewish people. Another way of saying this is that Israel's unbelief wasn't some unforeseen event that God was caught off guard by. It's like, oh my goodness, they, they don't believe me. What am I going to do? Well, I guess I'll just 
reject them and start over again. So Gentile salvation then is from a from Jewish unbelief isn't then God sort of making lemonade out of the lemons he's been given. But it has always been part of God's providential plan to save his chosen people, not just the Jews, but his chosen people of Jew and Gentile alike. And as we see here, Jewish unbelief was then God's providential means. Okay, we talk about providence. Providence is how God governs things, how, you know, through, you know, the the growth of herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, those things. All these things are God's providential control over the creation. And here, these are the means to get the gospel to the Gentiles. So Jewish unbelief, their rejection of the gospel is the means that God will use to then take the gospel to the nations. Consider the parable of the dinner guests. So keep your finger. We're going to, this is going to be a sword drill lesson. So keep your finger in Romans 11 and turn to Luke 14. So let's just go into the left a little bit. And in Luke 14, verses 16 through 24, Jesus tells a parable. And of course, you know, he was fond of telling parables. And in this parable, he says, he says to them, these are the, gathered people that are there. I think, if I'm not mistaken, the context, he's at a, at a feast at a Pharisee's house. All right, a man was giving a big supper, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported, to this, reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, and blind, and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges, and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Turn back to Romans 11. So here you have this parable in which Jesus talks about a lavish dinner being um, put on by this landowner. And he invites the guests. Now, who do you think the guests who kept making excuses were? Who do they represent? The Jews, right. So the guests who were invited were Jewish people, but they all rejected the dinner invitation. So then he says to his slave, okay, go out and now invite the poor, crippled, lame, and blind. Who do you think those represent? They represent Jewish people, but those are like the outcasts of society, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the people the Jews considered unclean and unfit. So they're, they're invited to the, to, the, to the feast. Then he says, now there's still room. So now go along the hedgeway and the highway and, and invite those people. And who are those people? The Gentiles, right, okay. So here... The Jewish people have been invited by God to come and taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. They reject that. So then God says, I'm going to then invite the outcasts of society. If you don't want to accept my invitation, I'm going to go to those that you think are unworthy. 
And then I'm going to go to those you think are not even really truly a people and bring them into my house. Furthermore, consider the pattern that the Apostle Paul used in the book of Acts when he goes on his missionary journeys. His first missionary journey, which you can, we're not going to turn there, but you, it's in uh, Acts chapter 13 and 14. He and Barnabas are preaching to the Jewish population in a town called Pisidian Antioch. So this is on their first journey. They're somewhere in Asia Minor. So that, that's not the Antioch that they start from, which is uh, in Pal- just north of Palestine. This is another Antioch. So after being well-received, they were asked then to come back on the next Sabbath. So they come the following week, and there's a large crowd. Many from the city have come now to hear Paul and Barnabas preach. But the Jewish people were driven to jealousy. They didn't like the fact that all these other people were coming into the town. And then they start to raz Paul and Barnabas. They start to ridicule them and insult them and do all sorts of mean things to them. And then Paul tells them in Acts 13, 46, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, Jewish people, first. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And that was a common theme in Paul's uh, his missionary activity as he goes throughout the book of Acts. He goes to the Jewish people first. They inevitably, some will believe, most will reject. And then he says, I'm going to wipe the dust off my feet. And I'm going to take it now to the Gentiles. So here's the point. These were, as we said, the God-ordained means to spread the message of the gospel to all nations. God uses Jewish unbelief to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Just as God used the uh, evil perpetrated by Joseph's brothers to take Joseph and put him into Egypt so that the Jewish people will be in Egypt by the time the evil Pharaoh comes in Exodus. Israel's stubborn unbelief prompted the apostles then to take the gospel to the Gentiles. However, this wholesale conversion of Gentiles in turn then provokes the Jewish people to jealousy. So they see this, they see the gospel that they rejected being accepted widely by Gentile people. They then in turn become jealous. This indicates that God is not done with the Jews. He is trying to provoke them into belief. God is not done with the Jewish people and is evident by what he says here in verse 12, where he says, now if their transgression, that is their unbelief, their rejection of the gospel is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more then will their fulfillment be? So Paul is hinting here that there will be eventual return of Jewish people. We're going to see this more next week or sorry, in two weeks. But Paul here, in a typical lesser to the greater type of argument that he likes to use, he draws a conclusion to what he said earlier in verse 11. So if Israel's transgression then becomes the means of salvation to come to the Gentile world, what do you think their fullness would mean? That's the point he's trying to draw here. It's like if, if they rejected means salvation to the, to the Gentile world, what will their inclusion be? Now, like I said, he's going to flesh this out more in verses 25 to 36, and we'll deal with it more then. But in short, what I see here is a preview of the notion of the fullness of the Jews seems to argue for a large-scale conversion of ethnic Jewish people prior to the end of the age. 
a large-scale conversion of ethnic Jewish people prior to the end of the age. That's what Paul is going to argue for here later in Romans 11. So Paul argues if the Jewish unbelief has meant riches for the world, imagine what their inclusion would be. And that seems to be the motivation of Paul's ministry as we look at verses 13 through 15. He says, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So now Paul is turning his attention to his Jewish audience or his Gentile audience. He says, okay, I'm talking to you now, non-Jewish folk, you Gentile people, I'm talking to you. And he says, look, I'm an apostle of the Gentiles. That was my calling. When God called me in Acts chapter 9, he set me apart to take the gospel to the Gentile world. So Paul then says, I magnify my ministry. I highlight it. I underscore my ministry to the Gentiles so that I make my own fellow countrymen jealous in order to save some of them. I hope to move them to jealousy to see the riches of the gospel as it comes to the Gentile people. I hope that they become jealous so that I can at least save some of them before I go on to glory myself. That's what he's saying here. I, so I, I, I boast about my, my ministry to the Gentiles in the hopes that some of my own countrymen will turn and be saved. And then he circles back to his argument from verse 12 where he says, if Jewish rejection means reconciliation of the world, that means the non-Jewish people, then their acceptance means life from the dead. And that's an interesting phrase there, life from the dead. And it can mean one of two things. First, it can mean that the inclusion of the fullness of the Jews will usher in the final resurrection at the end of the age. So it's, in other words, it's like that would signal the end of the age. When, when you see the mass conversion of Jewish people, that means, okay, Jesus is coming now. Or the fullness of the Jews could be speaking of a spiritual life, sort of corresponding to reconciliation earlier in the verse. Now, this is difficult to interpret. I I lean toward that second explanation, that the fullness of the Jews will result in a great spiritual revival of the Jewish people, somewhat in fulfillment of Ezekiel 37, where uh, the prophet gets the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, Um, I can read that. You can turn there if you'd like, Ezekiel 37. But in Ezekiel 37, here the prophet has a vision. And he says that the hand of the Lord was upon me. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 10. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold... There were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive 
and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and I proph- and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he goes on to say in the next uh, that these are my people, Israel. That's who these, the whole house of Israel are these dry bones in verse 11. And you can turn back to Romans chapter 11. So that's what I see here as this fullness is just a great revival of Jewish people. It will be close to the end, but it's hard to say whether or not that's the last thing that will happen before the return of Christ. We just expect that there will be a great Jewish inclusion at the near the end of this age. But then to sort of put the cherry on top of this little Sunday that Paul is making, he brings two analogies in verse 16 where he says, If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Now this idea of the first piece of dough is taken from Numbers chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. And the idea being is that the first piece of dough is holy. It's what you offer to God. It's like the first fruits. And if you do so, what you're doing is you are trusting God to give you the rest of the harvest. So you trust to him your first fruits, and you trust in God then to give you the rest of the harvest. So if the first piece of dough is holy to the Lord, the rest would be two. And the same with the analogy of the root and the branch. If the root is holy, then you can expect the branches that grow out from it will also be holy. Now most scholars see this, and I agree, as a reference to the patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Jacob. They would be the lump, you know, the, the pinch from the lump of dough. They would be the root of the people of Israel. They were set apart by God as holy, and God made promises to them that you would have many descendants, right? Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky, as much as the sand of the sea. You are the, the root of the Jewish people. And because they are holy, so too will be the whole lump, and so too will be the branches, They are the first piece of the lump of Israel. They are the root of Israel. In other words, the promises of God to the patriarchs will eventually result in a large harvest of Jewish souls. Well, moving on now to verses 17 through 21, Paul now continues to speak directly to his Gentile readers. And he continues his analogy here of the root and the branches in verses 17 and 18, where he says, But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Now, again, this illustration isn't too difficult. You have an olive tree root, you have natural branches and you have wild branches. Okay. Now I'm going to do this again like we did before. The natural branches would be Jewish people. The wild olive branches would be 
Gentiles. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you've got natural branches are Jewish people. Wild branches are Gentile people. Who's the olive tree root? Could be Jesus. Okay. The olive tree root is Israel as the covenant people of God. Okay. The olive tree root is Israel as the covenant people of God. So we shouldn't see the root as being the nation of Israel, as in the political uh, entity, or ethnic Israel, but Israel as the covenant people of God. And this is seen a couple of places in the Old Testament. Now, Sue, your answer is kind of right, too. We're going to get to that in just a second. But it's primarily the covenant people of God. In Jeremiah eleven sixteen, 16, uh, the Lord... Uh, the prophet says, the Lord called your name a green olive tree, speaking to the people of Israel, a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it, and its branches are worthless. So you've got the, the, the olive tree of Israel as a covenant people, but some of its branches are worthless, and they're being burned off. Or in Hosea chapter 14, verse 6, his, that is Israel's, shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. The olive tree is a common image of Israel. Now, again, not just Jewish people of Israel, the concept of Israel as the called out covenant people of God. So Israel's the olive tree and as a result of their sort of collective apostasy, not every single one, but as, as a whole, of their apostasy and idolatry, their branches are broken off and burned. You know, again, if you think about the covenant people throughout the Old Testament, when they were at their very best, their most obedient, were they completely 100% obedient? No. And at their very worst, were they completely in 100% idolatrous and apostate? No. There's always been a remnant. There's always been a few. But as the you know, just like if you had a, have a tree and you see a lot of rot in the leaves and the branches, you, you know, the tree is probably unhealthy as a whole. That's the idea here. Now, there's another analogy taken from John's gospel we can consider. That's where he mentions himself as the true vine. I am the true vine. I would turn to read, but we're running short on time, so I wanna, I'll, I'll skip that little sword drill there. But. The olive tree is Israel as the covenant people of God, but Jesus talks about himself as the true vine. He is the true fulfillment of Israel as a covenant people. He is the true Israel. He is the fulfillment of their of what Israel is as a type. Israel is a type of a son of God. They are, you know, just as Adam was a son of God, Israel was also a son of God. He says, I called you out from Egypt, my son, which is then applied to Jesus in the Gospels. So Israel or Jesus is the fulfillment and substance of what Israel is as they type and shadow. And in John 15, where he talks about himself being the true vine, we notice that the branches that abide in the true vine bear much fruit. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. If you do not abide in me, you will not bear much fruit. And then what will happen is then you will be worthless. And then my father, who is the vine dresser, will take you, gather you up, and burn you. So again, the evidence of being connected to the vine of Jesus is that you bear much fruit. If you don't bear fruit, you're going to be pruned off and then burned. So 
So in Romans 11, Paul borrows this language of Israel as the olive tree to show that because of their unbelief, many of the Jewish branches have been cut off and have been removed. But in their place, these wild olive branches of Gentiles are being grafted into to the root. And of course, this speaks of the Gentile inclusion into the covenant people of God. Now, if you remember last week, I spoke about how Reformed theology, covenant theology, has been often mislabeled as a replacement theology by some who don't like covenant theology. And then I made the argument that covenant theology is not a theology of replacement, but of expansion, right? It's not that you know, Israel gets set aside and now the church is the people of God. It's that Israel gets pruned and then the, you know, the Gentiles are added in and that becomes the church of Jesus Christ, is Jew and Gentile alike. Another place which teaches this idea of expansion is in Ephesians 2. Chapter, chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, Therefore remember that formerly you... The Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. You Gentiles remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now my two favorite words, right? But now... (laughs) But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, that is Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God. And you're noticing a theme there. The two are becoming one. One body of God. Through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So that passage there, Paul talks about how The church, this concept of the church, is the uniting of Jew and Gentile into one new man, one new body. Which, if you go back to Romans 11, that idea here is being seen in this fact that while some branches are being broken off of the true olive tree here, Gentile branches are grafted in. So you're you're adding to this concept of Israel or the church. So then in verse 18, Paul then warns his Gentile readers to not be arrogant toward the branches. Now, this is good advice for all of us, right? Salvation is by grace through faith, and even the faith to believe is a gracious gift that is given by God. And when it comes to salvation, there is no grounds for anyone to be arrogant. 
Not the Jews and certainly not the Gentiles. Remember, Paul talks about Jewish arrogance in chapter 2 where he says, don't be arrogant just because you think you're saved because you have the law and you have circumcision and you've got all these promises. You need to be faithful. You need to be a true Jew, one who worships with, you know, from the heart, not because of the letter of the law. And then he goes on, he says, the root supports the branch, not vice versa. Don't think you wild olive branch Gentile type people are special. You're not supporting the, the, the tree. The tree is supporting you. That's the point. You don't have any grounds for arrogance. Now, because there's always someone who thinks that they have a right to be arrogant. <laughs> there's always someone that's like, you know, like, you know, no one is saved by their works. And one person will always say, well, I could, I think I can, you know. And here Paul's like, you have no reason to be arrogant. And he's, there's always someone who's like, ah, I think I can be arrogant. Paul will say then in verses 19 through 21, you will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So in other words, it's like, look, I must be special because look, these chosen branches, these natural branches were removed so that I could be added to the tree. I must be special. Quite right, Paul says, they were broken off, but not because you're special. Sorry to disappoint you. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Now here's the warning. Don't be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he's not going to spare you either. In other words, look, he's removing those branches which are natural to this root. Do you think then if you are a wild branch that he's not going to remove you if you're not faithful? The natural branches were broken off from the root, but that was because of their unbelief. And Paul makes it clear that this is not a cause for arrogance, but fear. Now, not fear as in, oh, dear Lord, I hope I'm saved. I don't know if I'm saved. God could be angry at me in any moment and just snuff me out. That's not the type of fear he is trying to invoke here. Because if that was the type of fear, then why would God inspire Paul to write Romans chapter 8, which is a great chapter on assurance that no one can be separated from the love of Christ? Why would he inspire that if he meant for you to live in fear of your salvation moment to moment? But no, what he wants is the proper attitude of reverence and awe and worship. Look, you've been saved by grace, not by anything you've done. This is not a cause for you to be boastful or arrogant, but to be worshipful, to be reverent to God, to be in awe of God's grace. Then finally, in verses 22 through 24, Paul gives us a thought that then challenges our thinking about God. In verse 22, where he says, Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. Now, there have always been those throughout the history of the church who have emphasized one or, of the, or the other, or sometimes maybe one at the expense of the other. So emphasizing God's kindness or emphasizing God's severity but both are true. God is both kind and severe. We see both in this verse. The severity has been shown to the unbelieving Jews who have been broken off from the life-giving root. Similarly, kindness has been shown to the Gentiles who have then been grafted in. But then we must never, ever, ever, ever 
ever, ever, presume on God's grace, right? Many verses call us to stand firm and persevere in the faith. You want some verses? I'll give you four. I came equipped with four verses to show you that you must stand firm in your faith. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Again, a, a warning about being arrogant. A warning about think, by treating grace cheaply. Okay, Don't treat grace cheaply. Don't think just because I've been saved by grace, I can do whatever I want. Grace, by, you know, being saved by grace through faith is not a get out of jail hell card or get out of hell free card. It is a cause for you to persevere in the faith. Let him who thinks that he stands take heed that he does not fall. 2 Corinthians 1.24 Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. Or Hebrews 3.6 But Christ was faithful as the son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And then finally, Hebrews 3, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. You sense a theme there. If we hold fast, if we stand firm. Now to be sure, it is the Holy Spirit who does preserve us firm on our faith to the end, but that does not mean that we can be passive. Just because we're being preserved by the Holy Spirit does not mean I can just sit up here on my chair and not do anything and just say, well, okay, God's going to preserve me. I don't, I can just, you know, Jesus take the wheel, you know, to quote Carrie Underwood. No, it is not meant for us to be passive. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us the strength to persevere. We persevere because he preserves us, but we still are called to persevere. And then in verses 23 and 24, Paul makes it quite clear that the issue of being cut off is due to unbelief and not due to some inherent quality in the Gentiles. Verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue, that is the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? In other words, the hard work, if you want to call it hard work in the case of God, was taking these wild olive branches and grafting them into the olive tree. By comparison, it would be very easy to take branches that were already part of the tree and then graft them back in. Now, horticulturally, I don't think this is possible. Or it's, you know, but the point, he's trying to make a theological point here, is that if Jews start to believe in their Savior, God can and will bring them back into the olive tree, and it would be no problem for him to do so. But we see another thing here, too, in verses 23 and 24, is that a hint that God is not finished with ethnic Israel. They have been broken off due to their mass unbelief, and their unbelief has given an opportunity for Gentile inclusion in the root of Israel. But as he says here, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted back in. Again, a hint that if Jewish people turn to Jesus, they will be brought into the church. They will be brought back into the covenant people of God. There is hope for the Jews. 
they have neither totally nor finally been cast off by God. And as I said, we'll talk more about this in two weeks when we look at the rest of Romans chapter 11, the last part of that, verses 25 to 36.